Today on the Central Baptist Podcast, Tom Cowan looks at the heart of the Ten Commandments and why they matter in modern life. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message. So let me paint three scenarios for you. Come from life. Maybe you see yourself in one of them and we'll bring them to your, your, your bring them before us again this morning. Number one, you just got home from shopping with a couple of young children. They're tired and they need to go to bed for the afternoon. It's pouring. After all, it's the West Coast. And as you unpack the groceries and get their coats off, a small packet of candies falls out from one of their pockets. One of them has obviously taken it when you were busy. So what do you do? Do you get them dressed again and return the candies to the store? But it's raining, you're all tired, and the kids are crying. Scenario number two. You work in an office, maybe the government or some large office here, where people regularly take home pens and stationery and bits and pieces supplies for their own personal use at home. After all, everybody does it. The company's large and can afford it. It's no big deal. What do you do? By the way, people there know that you attend Central Baptist Church. Number three, the checkout line is long. People are getting frustrated. And the trainee cashier cashier is working as fast as she can. And you see that she has given you an extra $10 in your change. You only have a split second to react. What do you do? We'll come back to these about 30 minutes from now. We're doing a series right now based on the Decalogue, which means the 10 words that we get from God. This morning is word number eight. It simply says, you shall not steal. We all understand that. You see, the order and the harmony of society is held together by really a very flimsy thread. For the most part, the great majority of people live and abide by the defined rules of our community. We are not pluralists when it comes to facts. Facts are what we live with, whether we like them or not. And so with the approval of the majority, the the work of the police would go from hard to impossible. And we would experience the, the chaos of anarchy. Let me take you back this morning to a time we were in the Old Testament. As the nation of Israel traveled in the wilderness, every few days things had to be packed up. No doubt some things got forgotten. There's no lost and found. There's no locks on tents. You may be away from your tent for some time as as you fetch water and you, you can't really lock up your camel. So the life of the community was held together by a very flimsy thread in the human spirit. The thread of honesty and trust. When you think about it, that really is still the way it is largely today. This thread, this invisible glue that creates community comes from a basic notion of honesty. Don't steal. But in so many different ways today, that is being questioned. The ethics of consensus. Everybody's doing it. It's no big deal. Everyone does it. The ethics of pragmatism. The end justifies the means. The ethics of selfishness, they owe it to me because really they don't pay me enough anyway. 
Insurance companies tell us that we all pay a high cost for crime and theft. If you've ever had your car stolen, your house or your condo broken into, you know that. I read an article recently that about one-third of all insurance claims against household policies are false. People trying to get back more than it was stolen. Do you know what's on the rise in cars in Victoria here? Do you know what that is? Good. Catalytic converters. I don't quite know what that is. And I think my car's got one. And I hope I still have it. So what's stealing? Well, obviously, number one is taking something that belongs to someone else. The first and the most obvious meaning. We understand that. Or again, is squandering something. Maybe we steal time from our employer and we give less work than is expected. In the um, news this week, across my computer newspapers, a woman in BC, I think it was in Courtney, was ordered to pay her employer back $2,603. And what she stole was time. She was working at home and she billed time she said she had done at home and her computer said she did not do it because they had a tracking program on her computer when it was on and off and all those kinds of things. She appealed it and she lost her appeal. And she was charged for stealing time. Or again, perhaps stealing is withholding something that's needed. We're stealing when we do not give what is needed. The book of Proverbs says to us, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Don't say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow when you actually have it now. That's what Proverbs says to us. Now, all of us understand that bank accounts really work in two principles, deposits and withdrawals. The trouble for most of us is we're better at one than the other. You can figure that out yourself. <laughs> but we need to think of a different kind of bank account now. It's an internal one. And just like the other, it operates on deposits and withdrawals. And the interaction of, in, of these internal deposits and withdrawals is what creates character. That's our internal bank account or our internal moral compass, as it were. Let me define character for you. Character is the courage to develop and practice our internal moral agenda apart from the pressure of other people's opinions, cultural expectations, or external circumstances. You got that? It's the courage to develop and practice our internal moral agenda, but not related to people's opinions, cultural expectations, or external circumstances. Traits such as honesty are not created in the classroom. They're not learned in a seminar, even reading a good book about character. Character is only forged in the heat of real life situations in which we're either investing in ourselves, making credit in our inner life, or we're withdrawing something. Let's unpack that a little. When we are honest, we are investing in ourselves. When we steal, we are robbing ourselves. The Bible has no specific word for character, but it's a theme that's woven all the way through the scriptures. The book of Proverbs often defines character as our name. We might call it reputation. That's why Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name, our character, is better than riches. 
And we, and in that sense, two kinds of decisions are crucial. The first is this. Small decisions are the training ground for larger decisions. It's so easy to think that small decisions don't really matter. And somehow we're going to keep our moral stamina for some really big decision that's coming along that's really going to need an extra push. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, those small decisions, which may appear insignificant and trivial to us at the time, are actually the training ground for the larger decisions. Those daily events in life where it's too easy to yield, where no one's watching, those small choices which we face every day actually are the, the, it's where we develop deeply the development of our character. For most of us, the development of our character will be built on countless small decisions. Each of them may be trivial in themselves, most apparently insignificant, but more than we know, they will shape our lives. And that is why we start in the home when children are young. We teach them, teach them about truth-telling in the small decisions of life. The next thing is that private victories come before public victories. We want people to be honest and upright in public. Politicians talk about their public image. The way to develop this is that we need, we need character in our private lives. So if we want to be seen with honesty and credibility and integrity in the public area of life, we will have to win a victory in that area in our private lives. Someone has said, character is what you are when no one is looking. That's the road to authenticity. We cannot win battles in public that we have not won in private. And we will only win public battles when we've faced the enemy in private, when we've waged war against some inner opponent, and we have won. These two ideas work together, create what we might call the education of the conscience. That means we will nurture and cultivate in our lives the fact that there must be congruity, agreement between what we believe and how we live. There must be an agreement between who we are on the inside. For example, what we've been singing about this morning, our God is holy, it is Christ in us. Between that and how we live and act before others, our inner life and our outer world must agree. <clears throat> I often teach you some Greek words, so I'm going to change languages this morning and go back and teach some Latin. As you know, I was born and grew up in Glasgow, a big city in the west coast of Scotland. I went to a private boy school there, and for reasons that I never understood, I started Latin at the age of six. I don't know anybody who starts Latin at the six. The reason later I found out we did, um, you know we sing Christmas carols in the Advent season? Our private boys' school song of our Christmas carols in Latin. I have no idea why. But I still remember, Adeste Fidelis, Laite Triumphantes, Venite, Venite ad Bethlehem, Natum Videte, Regem Angelorum. Isn't that great after all these years? So this morning, <clears throat> this morning I'm going to teach you a Latin phrase that you really should know. Write this one down. The phrase is, Dictum est pactum. It's the motto of the London Stock Exchange. And what it simply means is this. My word is my bond. Got it? Dictum as pactum. And that's used to express and encourage adherence to the highest standards of integrity in the financial markets in the London Stock Exchange. You see, in the hustle and bustle of the trading floor, 
Stocks are bought and sold at that very moment, even before written agreements can be signed and done, go to lawyers or wherever they go. So when you agree at a certain time that that's the price you'll pay for that stock or the price you will sell it for, no matter what happens in the next hour or several hours, dictum est pactum. Your word is your bond. Your word to buy or sell at whatever price at that moment is your bond. But what a model for daily life. So when someone even thinks, how much can I get away with? That very question reveals a lack of internal honesty. The reason for this is very simply, everything that's genuine in our lives flows from the inside to the outside, never the other way around. There's a great emphasis today on values in our society. And so think with me for a moment, a gang may have values. What does it mean to belong to the gang? But that does not mean that those values are based on principles. Principles come before values. Principles are fundamental. And principles are based on truth. And that's hard for us because our society today talks about values as being important. And they are. We want value-based education. Harriet and I recently watched a TV program about trying to teach young people about value-based conversation. The point was, instead of using language that puts down, we can learn to use language vocabulary that builds up and affirms. But our difficulty is that we live in a culture that does not believe in absolute truth. So what are these values based on? It seems that the number one, the number one virtue today is not to be valiant for truth or strong for truth but rather to be tolerant of different values. In other words, we really have to accept anything is in our society. So we need people whose lives are based on principles, no matter which way the wind is blowing. And those principles have to be based on truth. The 10 words from God. When the moral fiber of a nation collapses, appreciated Phil's prayer this morning, reminding us of some of the struggles going on in Ukraine and Brazil and Peru, I think it was. When the moral fiber of a nation collapses, it is not because of major decisions in the corridors of power. Rather, it is often because ordinary people in ordinary places stop being honest about ordinary things in their daily lives. And that works its way up into public life. So when we're honest, we're investing in community. And when we steal, we're stealing from community. Theft does much more than steal things. It steals trust. And that destroys the reality of community. That means I can no longer trust you. So we lock our homes and our cars. But we still don't really trust one another. So we buy alarms for our homes and anti-theft devices for our cars. We need to remember that the work of the cross, the work of the spirit is not just about saving people. It's really about transforming people. And our goal is not only personal transformation, though that's important. It's also about community transformation. Our motto for the church is about transforming our community. 
It means because of our effect and influence and work here as salt and light from God. We want to see this community transformed in Victoria. Paul writes to the letter of Ephesians, very practical stuff. He who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work to something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. See the point? Interesting truth. There's no such thing as a born-again thief. The hands that used to steal and be nimble at picking pockets or wherever now have to be turned towards work. The person who took from the community now has to be giving back to the community. That's their job. That's what now they have to do. There's three things that bring people to a change of lifestyle. Number one is remorse. It means they're genuinely sorry for what they've done. I think today there's a great lack of remorse in our culture. Many people are not sorry for what they've done. They're just sorry that they got caught at what they were doing. That's why the Christian life begins in confession. First John chapter 1, verse 9, I think it is. If we, what's the word? Confess our sins. The Greek word for confess, by the way, now we move from Latin to Greek, okay? Just so you're with me. The Greek word for confession is homologio. It means we say the same word as God. In other words, we echo with God. We agree with God. We repeat what God already knows. When we confess something, we're not giving God new information. God's not saying, Tom, I never knew you did that. He knew that I had done that. The question is, do I know? And so confession is to agree with God about something going on in our lives. That's remorse. The second word is repentance. That means we're sorry enough to change, to turn our feet in a new direction. Repentance literally means we rethink, repent. We go in a new direction. We take our life in a new direction. So John the Baptist begins his ministry by saying, repent, change your direction in life and be baptized. I think it's exciting to know that in February, what is it, Phil, the 12th, we have some baptisms. I would just add my word of just encouragement and challenge to you this morning for that. I really believe, and I've believed in all my ministry and churches where we've been, that coming to Christ is to be followed pretty right hard on the heels with baptism. I encourage you to do that. I've told you before. I was baptized. I became a Christian, was baptized at 16 in a Baptist church in Glasgow. And so was it for those three folks um, who are coming this Sunday morning, the 12th, to be baptized. I want to come and applaud them for that move. And I hope it will challenge you to think about that step of discipleship in your life as you follow Jesus. So John says, repent, rethink your life, and be baptized. The third one you don't hear a lot about today, but it's restitution. That means we pay back. We go back and we make amends. And if you don't have the money, then perhaps we, we make amends in time or we make amends in service. In some way we can say, you know, I'm sorry, here's what I'm giving back. You say, do we do that to be forgiven? No. We do that because we are forgiven. And we want to make amends to what we've done to a person's life or home or whatever it is. Today, people laugh at that. But in those steps, we set people free. This is where people make a deposit into their internal bank account rather than a withdrawal. As I get to know you over these months, I know that we all face adversity in life. We face difficult situations that press in upon us. 
situations that demand that we dig deep into some deep well within us. But can I say to you this morning, if you're working your way through that, that kind of adversity or pressure that we face in life never damages us on the inside. What damages us on the inside is dishonesty and deceitfulness. We are damaged by anger. We are damaged by bitterness. We're not damaged in our inside because of something we have to go through. Again, when we're honest, we were investing in the beauty of God. This might be a new idea for you. And when we steal, we are robbing God of his credibility. You would know with me that slavery was part of the fabric of the Greek or Roman world. Slavery, by the way, existed for about 1,800 years. Jesus didn't come and get rid of it. Paul didn't come and get rid of it. Slavery was part of the fabric of the world. And it was just expected. It was expected that slaves would steal. Perhaps many of them did this just to survive each day. They stole, they stole some food for the from the kitchen just to eat. Maybe they stole some small items from a house that, that wouldn't be missed and they could take them and sell them in the market and get a few coins for them, from them to feed their family. This petty pilfering was a way of life. But you know what Paul says? I'll read the verse in a minute. You know what Paul's advice to Christian slave is, slaves is? Just straightforward. He said, stop it. Stop it. No more. Here's Titus. Chapter 2. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, trying to please them and not to talk back to them. And not to steal from them, but show them that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God their Savior attractive. That was a word that I really didn't know what it meant. So I looked it up a couple of weeks ago. Attractive. It is a word used to describe an arrangement of jewels being set in a context or a setting to show off their full beauty. It means that the honesty or honesty makes the truth about God we teach attractive. The precious stones of the character of God, the jewels of the character of God are set in such a way by our life and by our honesty that it makes God attractive. So there's some reasons for personal honesty. Obviously, we establish and we express our personal credibility. It's where we display our character. People quickly learn whether we can be trusted or not with money or time or whatever it is. Secondly, it's connected to our testimony. We say that we're Christians. That's got to mean something, we hope. Thirdly, and I suggest to you this morning, most important, our personal honesty is connected to the doctrine and the teaching about God. Our honesty is linked to the beauty of God. It will, what, it will be what makes God attractive. And we're faced with a humbling realization. When we live and act with honesty in these small, unseen acts of daily life, God looks good. All of us this morning have met someone who says, I don't want any more to do with God. I don't want anything to do with church. I don't want anything to do with Christianity or Christians. And why? It's because of what some Christian did to them. His business, or dealings, whatever it is. We've all heard that. I know that. We've all heard someone say, I've had enough of these hypocrites. 
We've all heard that. And when we, we wear that, God looks ugly. His beauty is made unattractive. But here from Paul is the antidote to that. It is character forged by those small, invisible daily choices. Where belief and behavior walk hand in hand, it creates a fragrance, it creates an aroma, a perfume, a jewel setting that makes God attractive to people. In 2 Corinthians, Paul just picks up this idea. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere. Catch this phrase, the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. The question that we need to ask every day this coming week then is simply, am I investing in the character of God? Am I making God attractive to people? In the final analysis, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He fleshed out the life of God and he made God attractive. And even as he hung on a cross where there was no beauty in him, no beauty in him, he was making God attractive. Even that cruelty was demonstrating that God is love. And the ultimate irony is this, that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. So let me take you back to those three scenarios. You just got home from shopping with two young children. You're tired. They need to go for their afternoon nap. It's pouring. It's the West Coast. And as you unpack the groceries, get their coats off, a small packet of candies falls out of one of their pockets. They've obviously taken it when you were busy. What do you do? Do you get them all dressed and in the car and return the candies to the store? It's raining, it's pouring, they're tired, they're crying. What do you do? Let me suggest to you, you put the coats back on the children again. You get them back in the car you go back to the store, you ask to speak to the manager, and the small thief, the one who took the candies, says that he's sorry. Another scenario, you work in an office where people regularly take home small things, you know, pens and stationery and paper, this, that, and the other. I mean, after, after all, everybody does it. It's a big company. It's no big deal. They can afford it. It is a big deal. You choose not to take those small items. Remember, it's connected to your credibility. It's where character, inner life, and outer life have to agree. Remember, the small private victories come before public victories. Ultimately, it's connected to the beauty of God. Or again, the line at the checkout is long. The trainee cashier is working as fast as she can. And you notice in a split second that you're given an extra $10 in your change. You only have that split second to react. What do you do? You take it out and you quietly let her know that she gave you $10 too much in your change. And you give it back to her. That's what we do. Why? Because we reject the ethics of consensus. 
that says everyone's doing it. It's no big deal. We reject the ethics of pragmatism. The end justifies the mind, the, the, the means. We reject the ethics of selfishness. They owe it to me because they don't pay me enough anyway. We reject these things when we follow the kingdom of God. I invite you to stand, the worship team to come back. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.